to see the first fruits of the dark side of right-wing moralism that has been a part of this country for 10 years. It is now rising up to bite those who rose it up. I saw a movie one time about a man who took a large Doberman pension and a pincher and trained it to kill strangers. As you might guess, it killed the one who trained him. It is the worst theology for one to have to be responsible for the rest of his life for experimentation at a certain age. Who among us would like to be judged for any period of our life and be denied the rest of our life because of it. It is not good Christian theology for one to not be able to serve his country because he experimented with dope. And I am very sad about all of that. Uh, but I think it is that when you require one to be straight and narrow, there are not very many who qualify to walk that kind of precise narrow ridge. And so who among us can serve? Who among us is qualified? Evidently, perfection is now a qualification for public service. Uh, I do not suffer any leisure for uh, lack of blame to the media asking those absolute ridiculous, embarrassing private questions of public servants. And so I am not <clears throat> thrilled, and there is no joy in me concerning the theology of what's happened. I had no personal stake in Mr. Ginsburg's, Ginsburg's future, uh, and have chosen not to be a political analyst, uh, but I am a theologian, and that is a miserable theology that one cannot be forgiven or have a new life because of an error at one time in his life or because of experimentation. In an ironic way, and perhaps a sarcastic way, which other than theology is what I do best is sarcasm. <laughs> I would be afraid of those who didn't experiment in the 60s and 70s because they know what the truth is. And that's even more scary, those who know what the truth is. So that's my quick observation and response theologically to the tragedy of the Ginsburg judgment. Where is the doctrine of forgiveness? Where is the doctrine of repentance? And where is the doctrine of new life? Well, uh, there is a small article in a chronicle today in which I'm quoted. It comes from a, an article on a seminar held last Saturday entitled Visions for Houston, in which several of us were 
invited to come and give reflections on Visions for Houston. It was uh, sponsored by a number of people, one being the Houston Center for Humanities. It was held at the University of Houston at the uh, Hilton Inn there. Uh, Friday night papers were delivered and Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon, and I spoke on Saturday morning. The topic I was given was uh, the city at play, and what is the vision for the city and the future of a city at play? Um, and I only was given 15, I was given only 15 minutes in which to do that, and I said to Ted Estes, who was the coordinator of that, uh, and he sat in my presence as I began my presentation, and I said that we have not been given enough time to do any definitive work on the issue of play, that I'd be willing to do so for if I was given more time and, and a larger honorarium. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have the more time now. I began my part of that reflection with a, a quotation from Woody Allen which came out of a scene in his movie Annie Hall. At first blush it may cause you to blush, uh, but if you'll stay with me for a moment you'll see I think a highly appropriateness of the quotation. In Annie Hall, Diane Keaton and Woody Allen had just completed a session of making love, to which she asked him the question, did you enjoy yourself? To which he responded that it was the most fun he'd ever had without laughing. We were conceived in play. If we go back to the great symbolic story, maybe even literal story, though it somehow has always ruined the story for me to make it literal, uh, the story of God creating human beings, it is a story of play. If you look at it through one critical eye, and I think probably we shouldn't look at anything with two eyes, yeah, we ought to look always with one eye closed so we can have some surprise for another angle to see what it is that we behold. If you look at the story of the book of Genesis with one eye, you see that it is a story of us being created as mud pies. There's God playing in the mist with the dirt. It's a wonderful story. There's a child at play creating. And part of the theology of our uh, beginnings have to do with the generosity of love, love's self. I decided uh, to play uh, history and created out of nothing the word for which is chaos, which really means empty. Uh, the word chaotic as has come to mean, I think, in 
popular lexicons, the idea of a random pinball machine kind of universe, but chaos really means nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of chaos came order. The word for order is cosmos. I think that's a playful idea. One of the great philosophical questions which uh, sets us musing about ourselves and to, and to find a great amusement in ourselves by asking the question, why is there something rather than nothing? It is a playful thing that whatever your image of view, a symbolic uh, word for the source of the mystery might be, ground of being, uh, beginning, that which is, source, source of mystery. There is a sense of generosity and delight in the beginnings of human beings. That a child at play with mist and mud making you and me. And then the most impish breathing of himself into it in a kind of maybe even a theological narcissism. I want to see what I might look like in history. And so the source of the mystery blows God's self into history. And so we have mystery and history somehow beginning in play. As I talked several weeks ago, the, the, the idea of the great joke that's been played on humankind, and all children discover it at some point, and that is that the way that we continue this play is in play. For the child to discover that you mean the way that creation continues is by doing that? Remember I said, you mean my mother and father did that? And the great joke on all of us is that in order for creation to be, we must play together. It's the most fun I've ever had without laughing. It's a wonderful joke on the seriousness with which we take ourselves as creators and procreators. And God has given us the ability to be co-creators through play. We were conceived in play by the source of the mystery making human mud pies. Blowing himself in admiration. The word admire comes from the same root as the word mirror. In admiration, God mirrors God's self in us, makes an image of God's self within us. What a playful thing to do. What a nice way to begin a world and play. And what a nice way for our life to have begun that I was not conceived in war, 
I was not conceived in prejudice, I was not conceived in tragedy or trauma, but I was conceived in play, in great joy, in union. My life was begun in play, and the incredible joy that evidently came as a result of that play. Conceived in play we were. Now as we begin to grow, we begin to take this play with appropriate seriousness because we have responsibility. We've been given stimuli for growth to which we must respond. That's an ability we have and to be human we must be responsible. And so I would not want to say that it's all just play, but I would say that under aligning our beginning and our end is play. I mean, this was a complete surprise to me when I was born. <laughs> I must admit, I had not expected it. Even more so, I had not requested it. Any more so than this grave that awaits me, I, I have not requested that either. But my guess is that there are great surprises in store for us, things that we cannot imagine. As you've heard me say before, in terms of womb life, uh, that fetus who has been in the garden uh, plugged into this matriarchal system of Eden is very traumatized by being expelled from the garden when it outgrows the womb. Uh, but as I watched my second son born, uh, there were things that he beheld that he hadn't imagined existed. He'd never seen light before. <clears throat> He was uh, conceived in play, but in darkness. Didn't know what it was that he was to become. And you should have seen him when he saw the light. Uh, the tears and trauma from the death that he had experienced were soon beginning to be wiped away with the new curiosity about the light. He'd never seen it before. My guess is that he hadn't imagined the light. He didn't even know there was light. Now, if that is a corollary, it seems to me that post-grave, there are some things that we don't know about that await us that are great surprises. It also probably means that tomorrow holds those things for those of us who have hope. Let me just say very quickly, you don't have to die in order to discover something new. It's available to us in this life, because life doesn't begin at death and begins at birth, and we believe continues through biological death. Now, what is play, then, for human beings? What, what is it that we do if we're to be at play? Well, it seems to me that play is very subjective. It's very much like art or personality that play is unique and it's subjective. The subject must decide for his or her, for him or herself, what play is. And sometimes the best way to define something is to look at its opposite. The opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is whatever is the opposite of play for the subject. I can't decide for you what play is the opposite of, but you know 
in your own life. It would be very different for each of us. Uh, in spite of uh, all, I was out lecturing yesterday morning. Um, I was doing a lecture at a big seminar on health, of all things, in which the one presenting with me, Don Williamson, said, what would health look like if we saw it? What would wellness feel like if we knew it? And he said it would probably mean that nobody would come out on Saturday either to lecture or hear one. <laughs> In the light of that, somebody said to me after the seminar, uh, did you hear what Dr. Williamson said? Why are you out here on Saturday lecturing when it should be a day of play for you? And I told him because I got paid for it. <laughs> there was a reason I went was because they paid me now what I do for play has a variety of opposites to it one of them is one of the things we were talking about in the seminar because we were addressing people helpers family therapists and we were talking about who heals the healer one of the things that Dr. Williamson said in the, his presentation that was very important for the healers of the world is to find ways to what he called detoxify. Now, I would say that's true for every uh, profession or the thing you do for which you get paid or the thing you do uh, that you have as the primary uh, occupation of your time that you get toxified by it uh, whether it's the stock market personnel medicine people helping administration management selling making assembling whatever it is that you do will toxify you it'll get into your very pores and make you oppressed with its heaviness. It's kind of like going to Benihana's. <laughs> when my, when my nine-year-old, when my 11-year-old was nine, we had that fairly typical family tradition of saying you can go anywhere you want for dinner. Well, the advertisers had captured him, and he had seen on TV this guy with a knife around his waist, like uh, a, a kind of southwestern shogun. <laughs> and so he wanted to go to Benihana's. And so we granted him that request. It was the least we could do for a nine-year-old. And so we went, most of you, many of you, may, may, maybe all of you have been to Benihana's and they have, uh, you sit in these uh, tuck and rolled booths uh, with people you don't even know. <laughs> I 
And the table is, you know, is a is a a, a, a giant pancake <laughs> grill. And this this guy appears out of nowhere with a knife and and vegetables and seafood and and uh, beef of the family of origin we don't know. <laughs> And this private celebration, sitting in the same U-shaped tuck-and-rolled booth with you are people that you don't know. <laughs> in our case, it was a mother with two children. We on our side, celebrating the gift of life, this child of God conceived in play, celebrating his ninth birthday, all excited together. And she was there telling us how she was a single parent and what an SOB her husband was. <laughs> Here she was, stuck raising these two girls, and her husband had run off with his secretary, and she had brought this child out for her birthday, all of this, of course, being told to us uh, in the presence of these two children of uh, bitter one parent. And here we were celebrating my son's birthday. I didn't even have my collar on, and how did she know? <laughs> you know, the worst part of the story for me is I must look like a priest. So he comes out and he begins to, uh, to take that knife or two and begins to chop and flip and fry. And everybody in the room is impressed uh, under the age of 12. <laughs> and so we, we uh, consume as much of this as we can and which leaves much uh, to be consumed at a later time. And my wife says, oh, we'd like to have a doggy bag, and so they bring a doggy bag, and the lady who has been there in the confessional booth with us <laughs> asks if our dog would like their scraps. this story is that when we left and got in the car, we smelled like uh, the entire uh, franchise of Benihana's. I told my wife that we probably ought to just drive from there to Twin Oaks Cleaners and undress. leave our clothes on the, the step and go home naturally. <laughs> now there are jobs and, and professions and occupations where you come home after a day or a week of that and you reek of it. You are toxified with it. It is in your clothing, it is in your pores, 
It is in your view, it's in your hearing. Now, play for you is whatever detoxifies you. And I can't prescribe that for you. I can only tell you that you know what it is. And it may be a variety of things, but it's a very important part of life is to play because it has an opposite that needs to be detoxified through whatever you do that brings you in touch with your own mud pie nature and the joke of being alive. We take this entirely too seriously. I'm in a profession that probably is most guilty of that. I mean, what kind of a world is it or would it be if my profession said to you, if you ever make a mistake, we're going to hold it against you the rest of your life. If you're not perfect, you will not be acceptable. Now, that's not, that's not religion. That's moralism. And those are two different things that have gotten very confused. Religion is that which says whatever's estranged is going to be reunited. Whatever's fractured is going to be put back together. Whatever's lost is going to be found. Religion is what says everything's going to be okay. In other words, religio, of course, means to bind up, put back together, make whole. Now, my profession is the worst at trying to lord it over people and, and be oppressive. Not only do I need to be detoxified from those people that I'm trying to help, which, that contaminate me uh, with their own evil. But I need to detoxify from the oppressive institution that expects so much of its institutional leaders. So I come home double-toxified. Unless uh, you realize, though, that a lot of what I do I see as play, and so sometimes I need to go work uh, to detoxify from the play. For instance, as you know, one of my uh, heroes is Frederick Beekner, which is probably too strong a word to put upon him because we have corresponded, and uh, he, he is uh, just another human being, but he writes so well, and he has such great insight that I have good respect for him. Frederick Bigner, in the second installment of his autobiography, which is entitled Then and Now, he writes about when he was ordained. <clears throat> and he talks in a way that only those of us maybe who have been ordained understand, unless uh, you've uh, um, been given a licensure of some kind in your profession, whether it's legal or medical or, or maybe just even been given the responsibility of raising a child or having a spouse, uh, that you know that there's a part of you that just laughs inside about the fact that I'm doing this. 
So Bigner tells about having gotten ordained, and he put on his robe and realized that what he was doing was the same as children do, and that is growing up by playing like a grown-up. Now, when we realize that one of the things that bothers me about contemporary society, my family most particularly, is when you drive home in the afternoon, you don't see children out playing. We've organized their play. They're playing the piano, they're at Cub Scouts, they're at soccer. They're all an organized play, and their imaginations have left uh, them because the TV has picked up any residual imagination and played it out for them. So I worry about that. Uh, and no opportunity to play, you know, to play house, to play grown-up, to play office, to play war. But we are still doing that, or at least I am, and that is one of the ways I grow up is by pretending, playing, making it up. And so Beekner says he was playing like a clergyman, put on the clothes. And one of the first acts that he performed was the wedding for his brother. And he says it doesn't take Dr. Freud to explain to me what was going on in the midst of the ceremony as I stood there playing like a clergyman with my playmate, my brother, before me, here I was authenticating his union. And I said, let us play. <laughs> he, playing like an authority, his brother, and his soon-to-be sister-in-law playing like grown-ups, acting like they were getting married. Don't we all do that at some level? As you know, I'm fond of saying, I've said before, I look around the house sometime and just kind of wonder who the children are and who the parents are. I'm a big deal doctor of divinity, and it's the greatest joke on humankind that's ever been. <laughs> I mean, if, if any of you are agnostic, I don't believe in atheists, so uh, nobody would be an atheist because they don't have any holidays. <laughs> but any of you who are agnostic, come on and believe. Look, if I can, if I can pull this off, <laughs> it's got to be something worthy of your time. I'm Pitt McGee from Drumright, Oklahoma, and I'm a doctor of divinity. <laughs> I was conceived in play. I am a mud pie. <laughs> now, it seems to me that, the, that unless you become like a little child, you'll never know about the kingdom of heaven. And when we play like we are growing up, it's one of the ways we grow up because grown-ups realize that it's all play. And if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you have to play into it. You can't work your way into it or you can't be serious enough to get into it. You don't deserve to enter it. You just play like 
it's there, and it's amazing how it appears. Now, this whole lecture this morning has its opposite. And so don't for a moment concern yourself with the fact that I don't take loss, pain, catastrophe, and tragedy with, with any seriousness. I do. But occasionally I just need a public detoxification where I tell you, I don't take this all so seriously, and there's no need for you to. It's, it's just religion. All religion is is human beings kind of looking for their origin, trying to find out where we came from. I told you where we came from. They're trying to find some set of symbols and language that'll help us kind of hold it together until, until we get it together and to be given a promise that all will be well. All manner of things will be well. That's basically what religion's about. And it's not about being perfect. It's not about being sentenced uh, to hell because you experimented or took a risk or made a mistake. So I think when we all write a new liturgy, um, the, I know we've had enough difficulty over the changing the prayer book. I know it's ruined your life. <laughs> and we need to take that seriously. But not too seriously. I mean, if the changing of the language in a prayer book has ruined your life, <clears throat> what kind of life is that? But I think we ought to change it again with a liturgy that has a kind of a threefold response. Uh, the Lord be with you and also with you. Let us play. And the response is, okay. <laughs> okay?